Hello, and welcome to season two of our podcast, The Midnight Ramblings. I'm Jenny Silverstein, and I'm with my dear friend from Ledoux Junior High, Carrie Austin Rosenthal. If you are joining us for the first time and you're wondering what this is all about, Carrie and I are two menopausal friends who can no longer sleep at night. So we decided the best thing to do would be to create a podcast about what we and others think about when we can't sleep. So as we like to say, let's get ready to ramble. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Well, that was our guest, Dr. Noelle Harris. Noelle received a Bachelor's of Arts degree in psychology from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and a master's degree in counseling psychology from St. Mary's University of Minnesota. Noelle received her PhD from Sophia University in California in transpersonal psychology, which is the intersection of psychology and spirituality. In addition, Noelle holds the chair board seat on the Rhode Island Department of Health Board of Mental Health Counselors, and Marriage and Family Therapists. Noelle has been working in higher education and providing mental health services to college students for the last 18 years. She is currently an Assistant Dean, Director of Counseling, Religious, and Spiritual Life at Bryant University in Rhode Island. And she has also worked in her own psychotherapy private practice. Her professional interests include cognitive behavioral treatments, trauma treatment via EMDR, Buddhist psychology, and mindfulness. And of all the people I have come across in my life, Noelle has been one of the most inspirational, the hardest working, the funniest, most generous, game for anything, grounded, smart, and loyal friend anyone could ask for. I'm not sure where I would be without her. And to that end, I am so thrilled to introduce my dear friend, Dr. Noelle Harris, to the podcast. Thank you, Carrie. That was so wow. You are a fellow uh, psychologist. I'm so happy to have you. And that introduction, I was just like, just know that you're someone I would really relate to. After, after <laughs> Especially all with the mindfulness, Buddhist stuff. Yeah, and the cognitive behavioral stuff. Uh, so, so welcome. Thank you. That was really lovely, Carrie. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You've earned it, my friend. You have earned it. Um, I would like to ask you a very important question that we'd like to ask on this podcast, and that is, what have you been thinking about when you can't sleep or you're up in the middle of the night? When you first asked me, I was doing fine, but then I had a couple of nights where I couldn't sleep again. So <laughs> I'm uh, sorry to hear that. Right. I think I ruminate, and that's something that I've always noticed that is a bit of an issue for me. So then I have to kind of apply skills that I teach people and that I've learned to settle my mind. So I will, I actually will recite mantras in my head and I count, I have some rituals. And then if I still can't sleep, I'll get up and I'll make tea and then I'll, I'll read or something. But what are you ruminating about these days, Noelle? Oh, well, you know, it's not as bad as when we were younger. Those ruminations were much more um, dysregulating. But I think it's just just the normal, mundane, going through your life and things that have to be done or not done. It's just kind of like part of your brain's acrobatics. Tell us a little bit about, um, you know, when you're up in the middle of the night, do you feel like you think about things like from your childhood? Do you think about your own children? Like, tell me a little bit about what, 
what some of those things are that you ruminate about most maybe we maybe let's just go to if you had to sort of say things that pop up repeatedly mm. hmm. repeatedly um probably things with relationships yeah I guess attachment things unfinished business will come up but that I, that's not a regular thing I mean that's when I'm more distressed I notice when my stress is higher then some of that stuff might come up more often like stuff from my history I guess that's pretty common for people do you want do you feel comfortable kind of discussing your history at all or I mean honestly I think I've resolved a good amount of my history issues but I definitely think um they inform all of my current habitual and you know unconscious patterns that may or may not be helpful we're all a work in progress so can you tell us a little bit about sort of what we're talking about your history as though it's this big blob can you do you mind sharing with us what some of that background is Sure. Uh, my parents were divorced when we were probably, I don't know, even I for you know, you kind of all the details kind of cloud up, I guess, but it would definitely have been um, elementary school. Yeah, elementary school to middle school kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they divorced. And it was kind of an ugly divorce. And it was it was even uglier before the divorce, and then it got a little bit ugly after the, the divorce. So, um, you know, my dad was an alcoholic, and he just dropped out of the picture. But before he left, it was kind of ugly. And my mom actually developed a late onset, like a very serious mental illness, and had bipolar had bipolar disorder and bipolar one disorder, which is very serious and was kind of in and out of treatment. It was very scary, you know, to have like basically no adults available because that's how it was. Mm-hmm. So I think that has, you know, had some profound impacts on, you know, everything. And and at what? how old were you when that happened, when, when your mom? When she lost her mind, basically, and went psychotic, um, was probably... You know, fourth grade, fifth grade, maybe something like that. I think so. And, and then, then, are you comfortable talking about that your sister ended up being sort of in your charge in high school, or was that in high school, or was that earlier? Yeah, was yeah. She was eighteen months older than us, so she kind of took had a household, and <laughs> that was pretty crazy. We also like basically went had to go through the court system to be emancipated from her because from it was, yeah yeah because it became pretty inhabitable to live the life so did she go into a hospital she went in and out of a couple hospitals and I think that she you know this is sort of not when people were as open about mental illness like they're not 100% now but on a continuum it was much worse back then and so I think she she was in some level of denial she might go in and do the treatment but then might leave and that not follow through everything that was hard did you didn't you have some kind of I feel like you went to a catholic school but didn't you have some kind of um social worker or a nun or I can't remember her name but you were really 
didn't know this. This is so crazy that you can like recollect all this stuff I've told you. That's so well, weird. Because I remember thinking, well, number one, I'm sure it informed why you became a therapist. Yeah. I mean, yeah. but I'm, I just also, I found, I remember feeling like that woman sort of was this yeah. seeker for you. And I'm just thought you might want to talk about Totally. It. That's completely true. There were a couple of them. One was a nun, but one was just a woman who was a guidance counselor and she taught psychology. And she's probably the reason why I got like an academic college scholarship because she she worked with me to like apply and do all that because that was her job. But also she just was very, it was cool because she was teaching psychology and so there are all these connections. So yeah, that's kind of how, and these people are just really, very um very helpful and supportive people and we needed some social support and they were like very um loving and kind to us and helped us out and and they were part of the catholic school dominican not some of them were the dominican nuns i guess but i think you know just listening to just a bit of your story i just you know all of us, or many of us, I should say, who become psychologists or therapists or in the helping profession are always, you know, influenced by our own experiences. And typically there's usually someone in our life and it, it, it may not be our parents. And, and in a lot of ways it isn't our parents who, you know, fill that void, whatever that void is and come in um, and help us through yeah. a really hard time. And I remember, uh, and you could leave this in or cut it out. But, uh, when I was training as a therapist, um, there was a little boy who loved to play basketball and, uh, his parents were both, you know, uh, not in the picture and his grandmother had raised him. And I'd written this story. Carrie knows I used to write these little stories and it's, your, yours is reminding me of this, um, called little balls can fly. And it was about this a ball that was sort of kicked into a corner and it was sort of deflated and um along came somebody and and picked up the ball and you know started really like taking care of the ball like the nun you know or whoever it was and soon the ball sort of like starts to bounce and then it and in the end of the story it sort of like bounces and becomes the sun and it's like a children's book um and as a therapist what have you learned by your own story that now I, I heard that you work with co- some college students and things like that. How often does your experience come into helping other people? Hmm. Well, in a, in a abstract way, probably every day, I think that I, I think there's a resiliency that yes. you can't learn about in a book that people have who, who, who basically survive or go through adversive things like all of us have on some degree. And I think that some of it is just, it's this sort of like survival thing, (laughs) you know? And I think people talk about trauma a lot in the world and I feel like we often pathologize it, but I really love this work by Tadeshi and Calhoun about um, post-traumatic growth. So I feel as if I try to tap into that with the people I work with and I can relate to that. So I never talk about my story per se, but I talk about 
the the ways in which people really transcend things when they when they pick themselves up and they they they're empowered you know one thing that i was just going to say about that noel so i'm going to take us back to college so here i am in college and you know your friends you're talking you know i hear all these details about noel who is not a complainer so it wasn't done in a complaining way but she's telling me all this stuff and i'm sad about a boy and I will never forget that you said to me. Well, this is another comment that you'll never forget no, about. No, 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 no. Careful what you say to Carrie, because she has a really good memory. I know. Um, but this is something that really, really always has struck with me in terms of your generosity, but also in terms of how to approach other people. Um, I would talk to you about like some stupid boy thing. Um, and you would say, and I would be like, oh, God, forget it. Compared to what you've gone through, this is nothing. This is nothing. And you're like, you know, Carrie, you're entitled to have your own pain. Like, you were always so gracious in that way. And I was, I, it always struck me because I feel like I would have been far more bitter <laughs> or far, far more, you know, think about it. I just want to set the stage a little bit. We're at school. My, my parents are paying for my college education. Noelle has got scholarships. No one's helping her out. She is literally, you know, fighting her way through this, which to me is gets to what you were talking about. You're so, and that's why I used the word strong earlier in terms of resiliency. It's like, there could be no better therapist to teach resiliency than you really. And you've certainly taught me that. And I, I, I wonder, um, do you ever doubt yourself or do you always know you can get through things? Uh, of course, I think. I think when you talked to me the other day and you picked up on something, I think, yeah, of course, like all the time. I think that's, you know. So your th history then doesn't provide, but long-term though, you I may mean, have. I, yeah, I think on some level, people always feel like an imposter, you know, at some level, I don't know. But a lot of people I talk to have lots of those kinds of insecurities that come up occasionally, but mostly you, you damp them down and you move on. Um, but I think for the most part, I know that I am doing good for people. For the most part, I feel like I'm pretty good at what I do at this point. And my, my stuff is, I'm aware enough about it that I can like, I can like, go beyond that and use that. But for the most part, I feel like pretty blessed to have these people tell me their life stories. And then um, it's just pretty amazing what happens actually in the therapy room when you can get to that place where, I don't know how to describe it exactly, but I would say um, Mahai, Chicks and Mahai explained it the best with the flow state. Yeah, and when I really allow myself to connect to a stupid, another person, a human being, and I have the time and space to do that, and we are a, we are we are mutually at this place where we're open to one another, I feel like something happens where I lose track of the time and 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 everything, and I'm just really involved with this person's experience and they let like let you in on on some level that's just it's different than anything else that I've ever experienced and you can kind of go deep and then and then so that that's really amazing to me and 
I guess while that's still happening and people still allow me to do that, I'll feel like this work is still um, beneficial. You know what I mean, Jen? Yeah, I can totally relate to what you're saying. And there is nothing quite like it. um, Because whenever you've gone through your own adversity and, and you have reached a level of not only survival, but, but really resiliency, as you described it, I think there's just this trust in the yeah. process of life. Yeah. Does that help you in your own life, you know, mm-hmm. as you age or, you know, move toward the unknown? Mm. Well, I'm not sure. Well, I like the whole, I mean, what, 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 what that, what came up was this resonance with this thing I use and, in the uh, office a lot where I talk about where people, you know, when people are stuck in their suffering, their, the way they, their biases or whatever. And so I'll I'll often talk about um, Buddhist psychology and how, you know, that pain is an inevitable part of life, but that suffering is optional and suffering happens because we choose to attach ourselves to things and we're grasping you know, and, and then I always think about, you know, from the plant matter to human life when something's born and then pretty much as soon as it's born, it begins to decay and people are sick and they, they have joy and people are born, but then people get sick and old and they have injuries and disease and then they die. But right now, if, if you have some semblance of health and wellness, and awareness, you can, you can sort of decide to drop the story, but you first have to know what the story is. So that's what I'm thinking about when I think about death. I guess I'm thinking about what's before death. And I think the closer we get to death and the closer I see people towards death, you know, it reminds me of trying to stay more in the moment. So of course, it's really helpful to think about death. That's a big thing in Buddhist psychology. Yes. Because this is a kind of death. I was going to ask, I was actually wondering, and I don't know if you're comfortable talking about this, but I was wondering what it is like to be parenting um, a child at the age when all this was happening. Did that, at, mm-hmm. when that all came up, like when, when you, like, oh. I know, do you know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Do you understand that question or do you even want You're to? saying what's it like to have a child at the age that I was living through some of the stuff I described? Yes. yes. Actually, the older I get, the more lucky I feel that I haven't lost my mind. <laughs> I'm not laughing at that, but I just thought that's a great point. in which you said it. Yeah. So I feel like I'm really moving into a good piece of territory here because I'm still I'm still gainfully employed and I'm still intact and um no I mean every once in a while you do think about that so I think it's been great to parent Avi with a little bit more wisdom as an older parent does it give you some compassion or like objectivity on what happened with your mom or your dad well, it's funny because every once in a while we'll talk about things from our history and 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 my my son is a guitar player and he's in a couple well, he was in a couple of bands. Now he's in one band that's sort of on a covid hiatus, I guess. But he he'll we'll talk to him about writing music and he'll say, "You know, all the best 
songwriters and musicians have these stories and they they have these negative experiences and all this trauma and like I live this like life without any of those issues so on some level I feel like they have it too easy these days you know I'm gonna throw something out there you know because this is not it's this podcast is not about menopause but certainly it it was created because of menopause at least in yeah. that Jenny and I couldn't sleep and menopause was a fucking reason reason but anyway um I cuss too much I've noticed on this podcast so I'm gonna try not to cuss anyway um but what I was gonna say is do you ever wonder what role because I know that I have had a lot of emotional ups and downs hormonally yeah. at this time of life and you hear a lot about women in their sort of 50s having mental illness. And I would love to just hear your perspective on that on your mother. Do you feel that it was, you know, perhaps brought on by hormones or the depletion of hormones? Or I'm just curious. Well, I think she did for her time. She probably was with children a little bit older, but I don't think she was like we were in our 30s or mid 30s. So, and she she probably had these issues starting when she was more in her forties. And, and maybe hormones played a role, but she was always a little bit, I guess when I look back, I think her personality was always larger than life. I used to describe her that way. So I feel like she was sort of already on the verge for a long time before she had that or her first whatever onset. So I don't think it was, brought on by hormones of menopause. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. She passed away after I was married. So probably back in 1996 or something, she died. And when she died, this is kind of, I don't know what you would call this, but when she died, she died, but I wasn't upset or as emotionally distraught as when she died, when she became bipolar, because she died then. She mm. died, she was a totally different person. And so, you know how you've read, you've read about this, how people's personality changes when, they, when they're medically really ill or when they're you know, have cancer when they're mentally ill or something like that, or they've had some major physical impairment, people's personality changes. So she changed so much so that I always felt like she died when I was like 10. Wow. I mean, she was still there, but it was all very negative after that. It was all very difficult to, it was very hard. The attachment was severed, if you will. You know, I just have to say that's so interesting, Noelle, because I always thought you were older. And this is interesting that we became such close friends because um, without getting into too much detail, um, you know, I had some difficulty at 10. Yeah. I mean, interesting. And I think there was definitely a shift, not a death, but a shift in my perception of that relationship mm-hmm. at 10. That's when my parents yeah. got divorced. And, um, and it's funny because I remember thinking to myself, I'm having two thoughts. One about one is that my stepfather had Alzheimer's and I felt like he died long before he actually passed away. So in that very similar way. So you bring up a really interesting, um, like, I don't know, aspect of death because it's like when the soul or the person's 
essence is gone. Exactly. It's like yes. you, you mourn it then. But the right. other thing that I was just thinking about is that there's also, you know, when you are a child, your parent, at least in a sort of idealistic world, maybe, um, or for me, your child, your parent is sort of, like you said, larger than life. They support you. They're strong. They're there. You, they take care of you. Right. And when, at whatever point in life that shifts, right. um, that it can be very uh, traumatic. And I feel like in my, and it's interesting, I've never even made this connection between us, but it's interesting because I do feel like in some ways when my parents got divorced, I saw my parents differently. Yeah. There was a shift in my, oh, wow, they, they're they having trauma. Like they're, are they allowed to have trauma? No, trauma is the wrong word. Right. Right. They're having right. pain, they're human beings. And they're not these like strong things that can't break. And to learn that at 10, which we both kind of did, mm. although in very different ways, I'm not comparing my situation, but no, no, um, no. I just find that really interesting. I'd never really thought about it before. And 10 has, I think, you know, 10, nine, whatever, whatever before teen, preteen or whatever. I think that's sort of right when people begin to have a little bit more of like, awareness not even a lot it's just beginning of it you know but but then when you know you get to be in your you know I don't know you just become more and more aware of things as you age that you weren't but you're exposed to more when your folks get divorced because then people start people start talking about it more than they normally you know now when you're you know Mary you you try to not say certain things in front of your kids and you sort of I guess you sort of, you try to be what you think you should be, which is like keep the parent stuff sort of separate and sort of keep a boundary around that adult stuff. But when you're exposed to folks who are separating and divorcing, you're exposed to a large level of adult material very early. And they'll they'll become parentified and they'll be like taking over some of that stuff. And that's very, that's, very what we consider to be not the developmental norm, you know. And what would you say, Noelle, in your experience as a psychologist, um, to either a listener that is uh, go going through a divorce, or to a child or college student, teenager, preteen teenager that is going through their parents getting a divorce? What, in your expertise, hmm. would you say, knowing the experience you went through on a personal level and now treating? Um, hmm. What would you say just to help that person um, gain any kind of perspective? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I know it's different for everyone, but. And I have to say, just to be clear, I'm not a psychologist. I haven't done the psychologist route. I'm a psychotherapist. Psychotherapist. Right. But I don't want to be a poser. So I'm just saying. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I would say, if possible, try to get your own therapist so your child doesn't become that person for you um and you know try to keep boundaries because so many students are really showing up with these robust attachment problems because they are you know projecting or you know have you know schemas of all this abandonment and dishonesty stuff because of their parents stuff that they saw it work, got worked out in front of them or they 
saw the ramifications of whatever the parent did and was hiding from the other parent, you know, so it's very complicated. And these, these kiddos basically, um, take on sort of adopt some of that stuff for their own issues. And, and then it becomes a part of their attachment style. So like, keep it together at least as much as possible um, so that you can sort of have your, your issues and work them out, not on the theater of your child's life as much as possible. But then, you know, also there's no way to, you know, combat that, you know, you have to also be compassionate that people are single parents, they don't have support networks. So it's going to happen. And I guess to be, um, to be understanding too, that there's no way you can, you know, if I would be a total fucking mess right now, if I was getting a divorce, there's no way I would be able to be what I'm describing to you. So it's so stupid that I'm even saying it. It's a paradox, but, but at the same time, just recognizing how much kids soak up. I think too, it's, it's a goal. It is, it's not really a should. It's sort of like, yeah, this is your goal. aspiration. I like but, that. But right. It's funny. Cause I think of my mother who uh, everyone on this podcast probably knows. I, I definitely admire. And um, you know, she was very angry. Both of my parents were very, very angry at each other, like really didn't like each other and made it very, they, it was almost like, I think back to when I had my first major breakup right. and right. I was so pissed off. Right. So right. like, right. how do you hold that in when you're in the middle of this dramatic period of your life? Like how right. do you not show that you're pissed off? I mean, like you right. said, you don't want to be a poser. Yes, that's interesting. It's interesting that we've circled to this place. Do you know why it's so interesting that we've circled this place of anger and divorce and relationships ending? No, why? No, it just seems kind of interesting that I did my dissertation on, on this very topic. Wow. Romantic breakup distress rumination. I don't even oh my know what God. that means, Noelle. Like you are talking like 10 levels oh. above my head. Oh no, sort of the academic scholarly way to talk about breakups, uh-huh. relationship dissolution. I was going to say it is that because for me, like in that big breakup that I, my first breakup, the thing that was so traumatic is that I had these expectations of yeah. this sort of beautiful way it would land in the world. Yeah, of course. Even though I saw relationships yeah. that didn't land that way at all. And the juxtaposition of my expectation versus reality was very disappointing. Yeah, <laughs> it is. <laughs> I love the way you phrase it, though, with that romantic, you know, word, uh, because I see so many couples who do have this romantic vision of how things are supposed to be. A couple that I treated, and it was so strong, this fairy tale, that it was not ever supposed to end so much so that it held the other person um, accountable to being what he thought was, you know, his story or the reflection of of how she should be. And it really, you know, threatened the relationship and it didn't really allow her to be who she was until obviously in therapy, we kind of had to like break that apart and, Uh and really like, embrace and accept what was. And I think if it's contained in therapy, I I think it can come out the other side, but oftentimes it's not. And there's a divorce. There's a, there's a separation because this romantic idealism, and I would love to know, you know, you started out talking about ruminating in the middle of the night 
Yeah. And and there's this word ruminating in your dissertation. So of this romantic uh, yeah. dissolution. <laughs> so yeah. right. tell me a little bit more about just the, the dissertation. It just sounds. Yeah. So I was saying it was ubiquitous. How many students were working through suffering, I guess, through their breakups, you know, as college students. And it was just so pervasive. And I honestly didn't really know what I was doing at one point. I, They would come in and talk about this sadness and the longing. And, and I felt like sometimes by the end of the session, they seemed worse than they were when they started <laughs> session. Well, I have to say something. <laughs> I'm laughing because you should have had enough experience with me. I know. <laughs> to get yeah. all of these college students. But anyway, go on. Yeah. I'm sorry. I just felt like I was starting to actually be part of the problem because people would loop and I did that. That's who I know that Carrie. We know we talked we would talk the same thing over and over. And I learned this term looping and then I learned about rumination I'm like what the fuck is that and then then (laughs) this is what's happening in like my office and it does then they leave and they're more upset and some of them are like suicidal and so I'm like oh my gosh so I was also simultaneously really getting into a yoga practice and a mindfulness practice because I had a lot of stress and there wasn't any way I was really stress managing myself so I started to do yoga and I started to do um, sitting practice and I was learning about DBT, probably no DBT. There's a mindfulness component. And I started to learn the secular mindfulness. And then I started to learn it like from more of a Buddhist practitioner point of view. And what I what was happening in my, my own experience, I started seeing in my students. So I would teach yoga and meditation as well. And so I started to be really aware of how worrier I was and how judgmental I was and how judgmental I was of myself and others. And then I started looking at how I couldn't even like chill out during Shavasana. I had to fucking go. Like I did this huge muscular class and then I would leave. I wouldn't even stay for the corpse pose. That's how neurotic I was. I had to leave. Wow. And I started to notice that I was, I needed to slow down and I needed to like be less reactive. I mean, I think I'm still defensive, but I'm less defensive. And I started to notice like ways in which I was, you know, habituating the same recapitulation. And then that's what was happening with my students. But they would come, the people who would come to yoga or meditation, especially yoga, they'd come to yoga and they'd be like, I'm so stressed out. Like, blah, blah, blah. They would do a class. There'd be like 15 people. And afterwards, just tons of people would say, oh, I feel so much better. I feel so much better. Thank you. And they would leave week after week. I feel so much better. Thank you. And then I would be teaching meditation sometimes in the psychotherapy office. I'd teach somebody something because they were um, having a hard time letting something go or really over worrying. And so I started thinking, like, how can I put this stuff together and do a holistic practice so people aren't talk, talk, talking, looping, 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 sad, ruminating, worry, stories of the past, worries of the future. How can I do something so in the present moment they can 
let their story go, feel their body, feel in control. When you do yoga, you, you use, you activate testosterone, which is an activating hormone, and you decrease cortisol, which is a stress hormone. So when the practice of yoga is actually a sympathetic nervous system regulator. It's a limbic system boost. Yeah. Okay. I have like 16 questions, but here's one of them. One time when I was feeling particularly anxious, I decided my mother, of course, said, why don't you go to a yoga class? And so I went to my very first yoga class and guess who freaked the fuck out? Me. Because yeah. my in those quiet moments, my brain started like doing exactly what you're talking about. So what is the did you get emotional, Carrie? Did you did you cry or get emotional? Did you have I did a not? It was all inside. No. Okay. Okay. And so some people um, will break down. Some people will break down no, in a yoga. I did not break down. Um, okay. It was it was a very early like if if you saw this class, you would laugh because it was like an elderly class in. Indiana that I was in because it was like a base. I didn't know if I could do yoga. So I wanted yeah. to take the most basic class. So it was a lot of older people. So no, I would not have freaked them all out with my, my anxiety over nothing. But anyway, my question to you is what is, how do you bring someone in? And, and I believe someone in a different podcast, maybe the one, the moon talked about the fact that if someone is so anxious that they can't be in the present how do you get them in the present so that they can get out of it because I could not I remember being like this is not relaxing this is freaking me out I think it really takes a little bit of time for certain people some people can't tolerate it yeah and some people it takes years for them I don't think if somebody told me to do these things you know 40 years ago Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have been able to receive that. Mm-hmm. It took me a while to receive it. So I think we offer some of these practices as an auxiliary or adjunctive kind of service to their psychotherapy and psychiatry. So, you know, when somebody's at that place where they're like, I'm ready to look at this, I'll be like, okay, every session in the beginning of your session or at the end of the session, we're going to take time and we're going to do a mindfulness practice because the more you help people with controlled and measured breathing and the more you help people learn, you know, how to breathe actually, because some people breathe from this area and then they hyperventilate. So what are you going to say, Jenny? Well, no, I just, I just love how you're articulating just the integration of the mind and the body and that, you know, so many people just think that, you know, they can come in, see a therapist work it out, fix it, you know, whatever it is. And that it really is this integration of mind and body. And I love how you offer it as part of your program. You know, I'll oftentimes make it part of my program too. Um, You know, a lot of my clients go to yoga or meditate or do mindfulness practices, but um, it, to me, it's, and it, it, it's a, the word, the way that you said it, it really is like an attitude of, of being ready to accept it. And, and once, cause a lot of people will come in and say, I tried meditation. I can't do it. Yeah. It's, my mind races, you know, forget it. And right. they're not ready. They're not yeah. ready to really like sink in to the, to what is really going on. So they kind of dismiss it yes. until, you know, the rubber hits the road and they really kind of understand that it is about really 
connecting the breath and to, to the, the racing mind and to the thoughts, mm-hmm. we walk around in our bodies so mm-hmm. disconnected and yeah. just thinking like, like thought bubbles, you know, like we all have a thought bubble around us. And yet what we, what we fail to recognize and what your program is, is really um, supporting, which I really love to hear is, you know, the thought bubbles and then the breath are, 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 you know, integrating and that we are, as we walk around, you know, I, I help people as well, just really connect that, that you always have your breath, you know, you always have the present moment and that it's, it's a tool that you forget about. It's such a lesson for so many people, don't you think? Yeah, it's a tool. Yeah, it's a good tool. Here's my question about being a therapist. Do you guys ever feel hopeless with clients? Do you ever feel like, you know, I don't have a strategy that's going to help them. And then do you just send them off to another therapist? You don't want to leave that. You know what I mean? But like, do you ever feel that way? Because I I feel like that would happen because people say they want to change, but maybe aren't ready to, to your point. It's it's interesting that you're asking this question because I just had this conversation with two therapists because I supervise the, the, you know, my staff. And so, and I'm also therapizing people. So they talk about their stuck points or impasses or, and I have a couple, I have one person now and I have a person in my, in my mind that I went to and that when you asked that question and every once in a while, there is a person that I can't feel connect. I can't connect to. And, and what I've learned is, and on the person I'm thinking about and the other one that I worked with for a long time, I could connect to this one. I can't connect to, but I feel like what you're describing is applying this hopelessness with my treatment. And I try not to get angry and have that come through because I would be rejecting this person. And this person has had a lot of rejections and I'm trying to do no harm. Yeah. I I mean, I think that, you know, when someone gets to, when there's a stuck point in therapy um, or when somebody, it's just like when you go to a massage therapist and there's a huge knot and it's like, is this ever going to, Right. Is it ever going to Yeah. Is it ever going to work? You know, my belief is, I mean, certainly there's, there's more flow states with certain clients. Like you just, where things just start really working. And then there are some people where in their own body and mind, it's so difficult for them to get to a certain point. But my belief is always, if they're there, there's a way through. You know, if, if the massage therapist is working on that knot, there's a way to release that stress. Mm-hmm. And if somebody is present and they're, you know, um, open, um, they are yeah. going to get through it. Like uh, there's many points, you know, I'm just thinking of a few different clients that I've worked with where I've thought, oh my God, like, you know, this pattern is so ingrained in this either person or couple or mm-hmm. um, that you know, here we are again, back to the same stuck point. And then when I've said something like, you know, maybe we should think about, you know, you guys split it. You know, I don't really ever say it, but sometimes, and there's just such a pull that they know, like they are wanting to be there for treatment to work through this. 
And they have to get sometimes to letting go in order to get back on the path. And so sometimes it'll go and they'll say, don't say that, Dr. Silverstein. Don't say that. We're here to work on our relationship. And I'm like, great. Let's let's talk about that, you know? Well, okay. But on that note, I'm going to just go a step further. Based on, Noelle, not to to keep harping on your particular past, but we all have pasts. And I'm wondering how, when you see a college student come in like me, who, you know, is upset about their boyfriend or, you know, whatever, and their life is pretty damn good, mm. right? And they don't have the appreciation for that. Do you ever feel judgmental of that? I know as, as a therapist, you're not supposed to feel judgmental, but I would wonder how you don't feel judgmental. Well, I think I, I learned in the beginning because I, I would minimize people's pain more because I would do what you just described. And I didn't really have the depth of empathy that I, that I needed to have to appreciate that everyone has suffering, that it just looks different. And when you peel back, not to use a dead cliche, but when you peel back the onion or you begin to sort of deconstruct what they're actually saying and after a couple sessions they begin to trust you I almost always find a just a real um different story so you know I sat with some woman for three three sessions before she told me she was molested you know I I sat with somebody for multiple sessions before I found out that they were raped you know um the person you're describing yourself you know after a couple of sessions, I would learn that, you know, your, your, your parents were divorced and there was all this dynamic stuff happening and trauma or whatever. So, you know, all of this stuff I now know is all connected to people's attachment styles and all this sort of object relations, how, how we, you know, internalize love objects. But when I was, you know, not as experienced, I, I couldn't apply that very well, but now I can apply it very well. And so even if I don't totally, even if I can't completely connect with someone's, you know, immature presentation of distress, mm -hmm. I can appreciate their suffering. Yeah, I, I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. And I've learned that people who have had traumatic events and adversity, you know this, Jenny, they're typically more empathic. Oh, for sure. Authentic. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Yeah. So I have a question. So I have to give you a little background on the question, which is that I do this thing. I can remember once, don't laugh. When You both will laugh when you hear this. But um, I remember once, like, not once, watching Oprah Winfrey, and I was like, does she does she understand life? Because she sure talks like she understands life. And I often, when I'm with a therapist, think to myself, do they, and I know they don't have perfect lives. There's a part of me that wonders, though, with all this skill and understanding, is it only, like, three-fourths reasonable that you would be able to implement those practices? Because no one gets it right, right? I mean... To the point where there's no problem. I mean, I don't know anyone who doesn't suffer from something or have something that's hard for them. Or so is it? But but yet there are so many great therapists out there and and smart philosophers who understand the best, you know, really great ways to cope. And yet there's no one who really 
is it sort of an impossible, like in the same way that we have romanticized views of, of relationships, do we have romanticized views of like human health? What's your consultation question, Carrie? I don't know what that means. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not clear. And I'm not, are you saying if we know the direct wellness antidote to all the problems, then why is there any suffering at all? Is that the question? Sort of like, why can't we get past the suffering? If, if there are answers out there, there are so many smart people who know it. And even among, I'm really specifically talking yeah. about practitioners. I see, okay. Who really have all of this experience. Okay. Well, I would say there's so many reasons why. Yeah, um, yes. One, one of them is that we, we, as therapists, I think you can easily look at other people's stuff and and be analytical about it. But when you get caught up in your own triggers and activations and things like that, that's totally different. So, right, you can't see, sometimes you can't see your own stuff the way you can see other people's. I guess what I'm saying is what is a realistic, not a romantic expectation of human psychological health? Mm. Okay. I guess that's my question. Well, I would think that it would be close to, you know, one of the things I don't like about the DSM and Western psychology, the DSM, the, 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 the Bible of, 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 of therapies, psychology, psychiatry, because it diagnoses, mm-hmm. it diagnoses people, right? It's very pathological, right? Mm-hmm. But one thing I did learn when I was teaching psychopathology is that in order to have disorders, and you know this, Jenny, because you're a psychologist, somebody has to have distress and impairment. So if you kind of look at that, and you look at um, the Buddha's sort of idea of, of wellness, you would say the lack of disease would be the lack of disease, the lack of dis-ease, the lack of disease and the lack of dis-ease. Mm-hmm. So in other words, living, living a life without illness, an actual medical illness, psychiatric illness, and then also living a life without this grasping, right? So you look at alcoholism, or you look at drug addiction, or you look at sex addiction, or you look at porn addiction, or you look at um, eating too many chips, food addiction, or whatever your fucking addiction is, it, and, and, you know, it's so easy to get a dopamine rush pleasure. And as adults and people in the world, you have to actually regulate that. You have to regulate how much pleasure you take in. Because if you take in too much pleasure, you will have a disease. And if you take in too much pleasure, you will have dis-ease because then you'll always be grasping to be high. So I think it's sort of somewhere in, in the middle of having disease and being content with what is, which is, which is not always getting high, which is not always having a rush, but which is just being in the moment of whatever it is. I love yeah. that. Yeah, I, I love the way you articulated that, Noelle. I, I, I just think, you know, what was coming to mind, I think I've said this quote on a, on a past podcast is that, you know, Freud's, you know, 
saying, you know, psychotherapy is really transforming hysterical misery into everyday unhappiness. Uh, there's no right answer, I guess, Carrie. Like, there's no one way to get there. Well, on that note, since we're all just going to suffer anyway, <laughs> are you ready for it, Noel? Just suffer through the hot flash round. I don't even know if you know what it is, but let's go for it. Okay. Which best describes your approach to aging? A, let nature take its course. B, color inject or cut me open as is necessary. Or C, all of the above. Mm, can I say A plus? What does that mean exactly? <laughs> mostly, mostly let nature take its course, but, you know, with a little bit of color. <laughs> That's me. I'm with you on that. I love that. Which do you prefer, puberty or menopause? Oh, my gosh. I think probably puberty because that was before I knew everything I know now. Mm -hmm. Pick one, screens or no screens? No screens. What is the worst thing about insomnia? Looping in the brain, man. When I remember there were so many weeks where I just could not go to sleep and I just couldn't shut my head off. So I would start reading. And that got better. What is the best thing about insomnia? The best thing about insomnia is nobody is around to, to, to ask you to do anything for them. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. I love you so much. It's not even funny. Um, okay. What is the best or worst thing about having kids? Oh, the best thing about having Avi is that... I can see his face and there's something just, yeah. The best thing is just seeing them grow up. And the worst thing about having kids is the worry, I think. A little bit of the worry, yeah. Well, of course, because I'm a ruminator, I'm going to say that. Yeah. I mean, shit. <laughs> what, else are you what has been the most surprising thing about being middle-aged? The most surprising thing is the level to which I don't give a fuck anymore. <laughs> I love it. Well, then you probably are answering the next question, which is what is the best thing about being middle-aged? Yeah. yeah. You don't have to worry. You don't have to give a fuck so much. It, see, I have the same problem um, with the with the swearing, Carrie. I, I, I love I it. Think is, it's very cathartic to yeah, use. It, does. it feels good. I don't know. It's but and yet when I hear myself say it, I'm like, oh, you're so crass, Carrie. How many times are you going to say crass once in a while? Um, if you had to pick one word, a cuss word or otherwise, to describe middle age, what would it be? Cuss word or enlightening. I love it, Noel. I think that's so good. Well, I just have to thank you, Noelle, so much for joining us today. You are just... Thanks for having me. Loved having you on. And you're so smart. I mean, you really are. It's like, you know, I knew you when you were just a, a little flippity college kid. And look at you now, girl. Um, well, to our listeners, thank you as well for joining us today. If you like what you heard, please be sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts. To learn what we're all about, visit us at themidnightramblings.com where you too can become a fansomniac. And of course, be sure to tell your friends because your support is necessary to make this thing take off. So for the Midnight Ramblings, this is Carrie Ofstein Rosenthal and Jenny Silverstein. Thank you again for joining us. We'll see you next week.